Well, good morning, everyone. So glad that you are here today. We are in week four of our series that we're calling It's Okay to Be Not Okay. Now, most of us here today uh, remember Walt Disney's fairy tale princes. A lot of us grew up on those princesses. We went to Disney World a few years ago. We had breakfast with them, all eight of them. I mean, there were princesses everywhere. And I guess that number has now grown to 13 of them. I had no idea there were so many Disney princesses. And you know, they all start off with what? Once upon a time. And they all end with, and they live happily ever after. And in between, they meet their prince, they fall in love, they, they get into some kind of trouble. They eat an apple, or the carriage turns into a pumpkin, or she pricks her finger on a spinning wheel and sleeps for a hundred years. But things eventually work out, the problem is resolved, and they marry Prince Charming. It's always Prince Charming. How many wives does he have, anyhow? I don't know. But there's something within all of us that wants to have a happy ending. Folks who write books or plays or movies will tell you they always sell better if they end happily ever after. Uh, years ago, Melinda and I went to see uh, the movie Mrs. Doubtfire. And it didn't end happily ever after. And Melinda, she was, she was kind of ticked off about it. She wanted to see Daniel and Miranda reconcile and get back together. I think she's still mad about it. If you see her, don't bring it up today. <coughs> but unfortunately, in the real world, real world, happily ever after doesn't happen to the majority of us. And the Bible would agree, especially Psalm 88. I am overwhelmed with troubles. My life draws near to death. I am counted among those who go down to the pit. I'm like one without strength. I am set apart with the dead, like the slain who lie in the grave, whom you remember no more, who are cut off from your care. Clearly, the psalmist is not okay. He goes on. You have put me in the lowest pit, in the darkest depth. Your wrath lies heavily on me. You have overwhelmed me with all your waves. You have taken from me my closest friends and have made me repulsive to them. I am confined and cannot escape. My eyes are dim with grief. I call to you, Lord, every day. I spread out my hands to you. Do you show your wonders to the dead? Do their spirits rise up and praise you? Is your love declared in the grave, and your faithfulness in destruction? Are your wonders known in the places of darkness, or your righteous deeds in the land of oblivion? But I cry to you for help, Lord. In the morning my prayer comes before you. Why, Lord, do you reject me and hide your face from me? So it's not just this situation is, is killing him. He, he lays it at the feet of God. He feels rejected by God. And he goes on like this for 18 verses. And finally, he concludes this way. 
You have taken from me my friend and neighbor. Darkness is my closest friend. The end. (laughs) No happy ending. No nice resolution. You know, two weeks ago I talked about the volta, the the change in in tone and poetry. Something like, I'm going to trust you, God. I'm going to hang on, but not here. Darkness is my closest friend. Danny, could you take that verse and and turn it into a cheery hymn? (laughs) Unlikely. Actually, somebody did many years ago. Hello, darkness, my old friend. I've come to talk to you again. Remember that song? Written by a Jewish songwriter who was most likely familiar with Psalm 88. You know, the words of the prophets are written on the subway halls and tenement halls and whispered in the sounds of silence. Sometimes the sounds of silence needs to be heard. How come? How long? And why? That's why we're doing this series. We, we need a place, we need a church where people can be real, where we can be authentic, where we can be raw and not pretend that everything is okay so much. And so today we're talking about disappointment and, and hurt and pain in our relationships. A marriage, family, or, or our friendships. Uh, I'm thinking of a woman who who feels like she got a a punch in the gut because her husband told her that he no longer loves her. I'm thinking of two men who have been friends for years who used to work together, both of them strong Christian leaders, now making horrible public accusations against each other. I'm thinking of a man who prayed and prayed for his wife to be healed. God, let her be well again. Let me grow old with her together. But God didn't. I'm thinking of a couple who live under the same roof, but they are really strangers in that house. And I'm thinking of a young single guy who is praying that God would send him a good wife, but God doesn't seem to be listening so far. And I'm thinking of a young woman who lives at home, and she loves her father, but they fight so much that sometimes she walks out the door and she's gone for weeks. And mom and dad don't know where she is. Now, maybe none of those categories describes you. Maybe you are married and life is just great. You marry the person of your dreams and and every day is better than the day before. And you've never experienced a difficult relationship with anyone. You've never hurt anyone and, and nobody has ever hurt you. In fact, you have never sinned. And if that describes you, I'd like to talk to you today after the service. Because you should probably be the pastor instead of me. But pretty sure that Jesus um, had some pretty difficult relationships in his family and, and with his friends. And by the way, he was single and seemed to be very happy about that. But for the rest of us, we live in the real world. And I don't know of any place where we need some honesty and authenticity than in the church. Because clearly the Bible is not afraid to deal with the realities of life, including the reality of marriage. Oftentimes the Bible is is more real and more honest and more raw than we church folks are. 
In fact, I think there are some statements that I hear from time to time from church folks about relationships that I just really question whether they're true or not. I want to talk about three of those that I hear, and maybe you can think of some more, but these are the three I want to focus on today. And here's the first one. If you find the right person, marriage is easy. Ever heard that one? What do you think? See, there's this idea out there for the Christian that, that there is my soulmate, that the one and only that God has for me. And, and when I see them, I'll just know, and it'll be easy and, and wonderful. You know, there's a lot of people in the Bible who are married. And if I was to ask you the question today, which, who in the Bible has the perfect marriage? Who would you point to? Who would you say, yeah, this couple, they, they had the perfect marriage? Who would you choose? Abraham and Sarah? Evidently, Sarah was, uh, was very beautiful, so when they went to live for a while in Egypt, Abraham lies and tells everyone that Sarah is his sister so they won't try to kill him. How do you think that went over? Create a real scandal. Well, how about Jacob and Rachel? Maybe they had the perfect marriage in the Bible. The Bible says that Jacob loved Rachel a lot, so it must be that one, right? Did you know that Jacob was also married to Rachel's sister, Leah? Why did he think that was a good idea? Plus, he had children with their servant girls. <laughs> they had a contest to see which of the women could have the most children. And really, none of those women were very happy with Jacob most of the time. Well, how about Esther and King Xerxes? What a great love story, right? I mean, to be married to a king or to be married to the most beautiful woman in the kingdom, that would be so romantic. Did you know that actually Esther became queen because the previous wife, Vashti, stood up to her drunken husband and embarrassed him in front of his friends? And so he left her and he married Esther, one of 127 other women in his harem. Does that sound to you like a romantic marriage? Not from our 21st century perspective. First time I met Melinda, it was at a Bible study at my parents' home. A mutual friend brought her. And she told me, actually, just a, a few years ago, that the moment she saw me, and, and, and I had my back towards her, by the way, God told her that she would marry me. Hadn't, didn't even know who I was. Just saw my back. God spoke to her and said, you're going to marry him. It's probably a good thing that she didn't see my face first. And I've always wondered why God told her and not me as well. Probably because I wasn't listening. But you would think that if God was arranging this, this, this relationship to happen, that it would have been a, an easy marriage and we'd be living happily ever after, don't you? Well, maybe we're living happily ever after. Some days. But folks, there's nothing easy about it, is there? You know, it's funny how Many people think of the Bible as a collection of fairy tales. But the Bible never ends a story by saying they got married and lived happily ever after. In the Bible, marriage never delivers happily ever after. Only Jesus delivers 
happily ever after. Pastor and author Tim Keller says that in our culture, we believe that, that marriage exists to make us happy. I mean, just go and watch a romantic comedy, and, and you'll see that theme. But according to the Bible, marriage does not exist to make us happy. It really it exists to make us more like Jesus. It exists to, to sort of sand the rough edges off of you, to, to make you more and more into the kind of person that God designs you to be. Folks, I'll tell you a little secret. If you are married, the most important thing for you to know about the per that person that you married is that you married a sinner. And here's another truth for you to know if you're married today. The person that you married married a sinner. So turn to the person beside you and just give them a nod or a wink and, let, and acknowledge this truth, that you're both sinners. Would you do that? Just acknowledge that you're all sinners. <laughs> you see, the truth is every relationship can serve as a tool for our spiritual formation. I mean, friends have done that for me. My children have done that for me. Bosses, neighbors, even people who don't like me have been used by God to make me more like Jesus, to sand off those rough spots in my personality. One of my heroes is John Wesley, the founder of the Methodist movement. This guy was an Oxford graduate, remarkably intelligent, brilliant theologian and church planner. Thousands of people came to faith listening to him preach. He was truly one of the greatest evangelists in the history of the church. Did you know he had a terrible marriage? He was in his late 40s when he married a widow by the name of Mary Vazell. And he wrote in his journal that now, just because he was married, he was not going to slow down his busy schedule, nor was he going to preach one sermon less simply because he was married. His marriage lasted about seven years before he moved out. It did not end happily ever after. Now he wrote about, he said, this is what he wrote about how to decide whether you should marry or stay single. He said, which state can I be the most holy and do the most good? I think that's good advice. Unfortunately, he didn't follow his own advice. The Apostle Paul writes in Colossians chapter 3, he says, When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will appear with him in glory. So when Jesus comes back again, you will appear uh, in your glorious state. You see, there are two yous. The, there are the before and after you. There's the current you, the sinful you, the flawed you, the messed up you. And then there is the you that will appear when Christ returns, the glorious you, the you as, as God intended you to be with all of the junk and all of our sinful nature purged away. You see, when you fall in love, part of what happens is you get a little glimpse of that glorious you that is the person you have fallen in love with. That's why falling in love is such a gift of grace. And you fall in love and you get married. Who are you married to? Are you married to the current sinful them or the glorious them? 
you married the sinful them. And then you get to see them up so close that you cannot help but see all the flaws and all the messed upness of their lives. And sometimes it's a surprise, isn't it? Melinda was telling me the other day how unfair it was that that I had no wrinkles and that I seemed to be aging so much slower than she was. She wondered if maybe I wasn't slipping off secretly and getting Botox treatments. Now, I was confused because when I look in the mirror, I see plenty of wrinkles. And this went on for for, uh, some months. And then it came to me that she's farsighted. And so one day I said, honey, put on your reading glasses and take a look at me. She got up, she got real close, she looked at me through her reading glasses and she said, oh my, you are getting old. (laughs) The wonderful thing is, though, if I want to impress her, all I have to do is stand back a couple feet and I look wonderful again. But when she puts on her readers, she sees all of my flaws. See, that's all of us. Marriage can be the great, well, any relationship can be a great flaw detector. But relationships, marriage, doesn't create the flaws. It, it exposes them. It reveals them. We look pretty good 10 feet away until you get up close and you see the real me. And I can't hide it anymore. You see the anxious me. You see the angry me. You see the selfish me. You see the greedy me. You see the lazy me. And the judgmental me. See, the purpose of relationships is not to make me happy. It's to sanctify me. It's to help turn the current sinful me into that glorious me that God has in mind for all of us. Now, there's another statement that I hear sometimes around the church, and it goes something like this. There's a perfect someone out there for you. What do you think? Is that true or false? Maybe sometimes. Perfection is hard to find. And maybe if you're single, maybe well-meaning people have said things to you like, you know, you need to learn to be content in God first. Once you're content, then God will bring that, bring that perfect someone into your life. Is that true? I don't know. Maybe. Or, or maybe sometimes if you're single, people will say something like, you know what? This is a test of your faith. You, you, you have to pray with absolute certainty with more faith. And if you have more faith, God will bring that perfect someone into your life. What do you think? Is that true? You know, the Apostle Paul had some interesting uh, things to say about singleness and marriage in his letter to the Corinthians. He says this. He says, Are you pledged to a woman? Do not seek to be released. Are you free from such a commitment? Do not look for a wife. But if you do marry, you have not sinned. And if a virgin marries, she has not sinned. But those who marry will face many troubles in this life. And I want to spare you this. What I mean, brothers and sisters, is the time is short. For this world in its present form is passing away. Now, sometimes Christians read this and they think Paul was anti-marriage. 
I don't think so. First of all, notice that that Paul says the time is short. It may be that that Paul believed that the end was coming quickly. It just didn't make sense to, to start a family if the world was coming to an end. New Testament scholar Stanley Hauerwas thinks that Jesus and Paul, uh, both single, uh, by the way, are presenting an alternative point of view to the culture of their day. That for the first time in the history of, of religious life, singleness is presented as another way of life. That marriage isn't necessarily the, the road to happily ever after. That Jesus and Paul led joy-filled, meaningful lives as single men. Now, Catholics institutionalized celibacy and Protestants revolted against it, but still it changed the way that the single people are viewed, as whole and as complete as they are. I read the other day about a guy who who believes that God has called him to singleness. And listen to what he says. When I was first making the decision to pursue singleness, there were stabs of pain as I realized I would never attend my child's soccer game. Never kiss my wife goodnight. But from the grave of the dreams, of those dreams, have arisen better dreams. That God is calling me to things I would never have been able to imagine or do as a married person. I gave up a good thing to God and found that God will not be outgiven. You see, that ability to be celibate and to be satisfied in Christ is a wonderful gift that God gives to some of us. And there's one more statement that I hear around church. And it goes something like this. If you're in a bad relationship, but you pray hard enough, it will be healed. Now, maybe this is true. I hope it is. I've seen a lot of couples come into my office, and I didn't think they had a chance of surviving but they did but some have not what I've generally found is if if both husband and wife want the marriage to survive there's a good chance it will but if one doesn't survival rate goes down (laughs) divorce may be the only way and when that happens the church will be there to provide support and encouragement for both of them I was reading an article just recently about Billy and Ruth Graham's marriage. And the truth is that Billy Graham was gone for months at a time. And it had a very negative impact upon his wife and upon his children. And one time she was asked this question. Ruth was asked this question by a reporter. He asked, did you ever consider divorce? And I love her response. She said, no, I never considered divorce. But I thought about murder many times. (laughs) You see, many of us have experienced disappointment, haven't we? And hurt and pain as it relates to our relationships with others. In marriage, we long for that happily ever after ending. But we know we don't live in that kind of a make-believe world. Separation, divorce happens. If we are single, we dream of that perfect somebody out there, only he or she never arrives. Parents are not always who we hope that they would be. 
And sometimes our friends betray us. But Psalm 88 is strikingly real about the realities of life. And when we are in this place, when we are in church, we need to be real and honest, acknowledging that sometimes I am not okay. And that actually is a very important part of our faith. You know, we oftentimes expect people to meet our core needs and those longings that we have. And yes, we can get those needs met on a human level to a degree. But I've come to believe that only God can truly satisfy. Only God can meet those deepest needs. And then if we'll look to him to meet our deepest needs, we'll be satisfied and we will be able to relate in a healthy way with all of those people, our spouses, our children, our, our friends, uh, in, in a good and healthy way. The most important uh, issue in any relationship is our personal, daily relationship with Christ. And when we look to Him for fulfillment, we will never be disappointed. Let's pray. God, I pray for everyone in this room today that even now you begin to bring your healing love and any decisions that need to be made to begin again, to offer forgiveness, to reaffirm a commitment, to simply say, I love you. Help us to make that decision today. Thank you for our relationship with you that is ours far beyond singleness or marriage. This we pray in the name of Christ. Amen.